0: This is Crossroads, the Get Religion Podcast. This is Joseph Michael Stevick here, a Christian. Joseph Michael Stevick, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I hope that took, Lord, because
1: they're going to kill me when I get home. That's a scene from the 1970s sitcom produced and created by Norman Lear. All in the family, Archie Bunker is baptizing his grandchild over against the objections of his daughter and son-in-law. Could such a scenario even be possible from Hollywood today? It's time to reflect upon the role of religion in the work of the late producer, Norman Lear. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back.
0: Glad to be here.
1: So Norman Lear founded People for the American Way in response to the rise of the religious right. But why else was Norman Lear important as, well, kind of a religious leader of sorts? Yeah, he
0: is a really complex person, and so is his legacy. And I'm on the road right now, which means I'm not at home. I don't have my files next to me. And I have to admit, I'm frantically remembering what Norman Lear told me in an interview that I did with him in 1991 when he created a show that was attempting to put religion into the context of a sitcom. And, of course, it had to be a Norman Lear approach to all that. But one of the things that I learned was the degree to which he was uncomfortable with Hollywood's reluctance to deal with religion. So I think you've got to look at him as a classic – Hollywood liberal, I mean the kind of guy that when he wants to do middle America, the family still lives in New York City and Queens. I don't think he had any idea what was going on in flyover country in America between the East Coast and the West Coast until he ran into it in the form of the religious right and he was freaked out by the rise of the religious right and created, you know, as you mentioned, people for the American way. But through people in the American way, he began to realize the power of religion in, say, black culture and in Latino culture. And he began to realize that there really were liberals who wanted America to have freedom from religion, not freedom of religion. And so I think in the final third stage of his career, he was just as uncomfortable with the fear of religion as he was uncomfortable or scared of the kind of America is a Christian nation, you know, that whole approach to what some people now in a trendy way would call Christian nationalism. Obviously, he would be blowing the trumpet of fear over Christian nationalism. But at the same time, he, I think my conviction is that he became genuinely uncomfortable with the fact that Hollywood and elite forms of American life just couldn't understand how important religion was to normal American life. And so you, you take those two poles of his convictions – And there's a massive amount of tension between them. But you've got to see them both if you're going to understand why this man was important.
1: Why did you interview him?
0: Well, he was attempting to do a sitcom, which, like a lot of the the sitcoms and shows of his later career, was not as successful. And the name of the show was Sunday Dinner. And the whole idea here, and this he was living out a part of his own life. So you have the patriarch of the family who is, like, in his late 50s, and he's marrying a 30-year-old woman. And his family has gone nuts, ballistic, about the fact that he's marrying this younger woman. He's marrying a woman who's the age of his daughters, which leads to a famous line from the opening episode where one of his daughters goes, but why do you need her when you have me? Another daughter goes, what are you saying? And she goes, what am I saying? You know, But he wanted Sunday dinner as a symbol of a place where the family came together no matter how divided they were, and they had to talk about things that were real. And he chose Sunday dinner as a symbol of that in American life. And the fact that his fiancée – I'm trying to remember – Whether he's married her, he's engaged to her when the series begins. And she might even be ordained, but she is a feminist new age thinker, kind of like a Terry Hatcher playing a beautiful young white version of Oprah Winfrey or something like that. And she talks about God all the time, and the Sunday dinners start with her doing a dramatic prayer, a famous one which is quoted in a Christianity Today article about all this. She says, Chief, Chief is what she called God. Chief, I know I shouldn't ask you to, to make Ben's kids love me, but I can pray to be a really lovable person. Well, that's kind of lowest common denominator religion. I was interviewed for that piece at Christianity Today Either that or they took this out of my column. Like I said, I don't have a copy of my column in front of me because the column is older than the Internet. You have to stop and think about that for a minute. So I can't get to my own column on the Internet because it's not there. Anyway, But I was quoted as saying, there is nothing in this show to cheer the heart of a traditional Christian, and there's nothing to offend Shirley MacLaine. But at the same time, I was also trying to get across the point that he was intrigued with the power of religion, and he was fascinated that Hollywood just couldn't come to grips with it. Here's another little interesting insight. My friend Doug LeBlanc, the co-founder of Get Religion, found this and sent it to me this afternoon. Are you familiar with the movie that came out about two years ago called The Most Reluctant Convert, The Untold Story of C.S. Lewis?
1: Yes, passingly.
0: Right. Right. And Max McLean starred as C.S. Lewis, and Max McLean, who lives in New York City and leads a center for faith in theater in New York City, excellent institution. Their work on C.S. Lewis is tremendous in particular, but they do other things as well. Max McLean was talking about the fact that when the movie The C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert came out, he was surprised to get an email from Norman Lear praising him for doing this film. And in the email, Norman Lear said, God knows we need more intriguing faith-oriented films like this one. Noble is the right word. I would also add courageous and powerful. Thank you for all you do, and bravo. You are a true artist. Norman Lear. Praising, if you've seen the film, it's a blatantly Christian evangelical look at the conversion of C.S. Lewis to theism and then to Christianity. And Norman Lear loved the film. And notice how he said, God knows we need more intriguing, faith-oriented films like this one. And that's what I was already hearing from him when I interviewed him, which is simply stated, why can't we get this right? Why can't we get this done? Fascinating.
1: What do we know about him personally in terms of his religious views? He was, at the very least, a, a cultural Jew. Did he have... Particular religious opinions himself as he was interested in religion in general.
0: Now he, he stressed he was not a religionist of any kind. His background comes out of just needless to say some of the worst possible experiences of you know of the early twentieth century. He died at age 101, and his background, his parents were Russian and Ukrainian Jews, which meant they came out of Europe during just a brutal period of time in the experiences of the Jewish people. And so he would he stressed over and over I am not, you know, a religious of any kind. But he was sincerely intrigued with religion. But at the same time his lens is so parochial. It would be like if you had a brilliant producer who lived in Nashville or Dallas and grew up immersed in white evangelical culture, it would be like him trying to do a sitcom about intelligent, secular Jewish people living in New York City. I mean, the gulf of cultural experience is so wide. Now, then you throw in the fact that when he does his greatest work, which is personified by Archie Bunker. He's trying to deal with real American life. And he was praised by Hollywood for doing that. But stop and listen to this quote for a second. This is by another one of the great writers of all time, Paddy Chayefsky. He said, Lear took television away from the dopey wives and dumb fathers, from the pimps, hookers, hustlers, privatized junkies, cowboys, and rustlers that constituted television chaos, and in their place he put the American people. Now, that's a wonderful quote, and it really says what Hollywood people, the most brilliant people in Hollywood, thought of Norman Lear. But isn't it also interesting that they think that the Jeffersons and Sanford and Son and Maud and Archie Bunker, that that represents the American people? So I, I think I was trying to think of how to express this in a way that our listeners might understand. Are you familiar – we've discussed it before. You're familiar with the the famous blue and red map where you, you take the states from – I believe it was the George W. Bush's first election when he beats Vice President Gore. That famous red and blue map. And you have all these variations of it. And the red part of the map, the great flyover country, middle of America, is called – Jesus Land. And then the blue part, the Upper East Coast, the West Coast, and Canada, the blue part of the map usually is given a name something like the Republic of Education and Reason versus Jesus Land. So I think Lear would understand the degree to which he helped create that map, and that he couldn't get Hollywood to realize that the middle part of that map existed. And he couldn't understand, for example, why religious forms of faith in general, why they didn't flourish. If America was getting more and more liberal, and that was true, by the way, liberal in in some sort of woke sense of the word more socially and morally and culturally liberal. He understood the 60s and he understood what was happening in America. He lived all that. But at the same time then why weren't liberal forms of faith catching on with the heartland of American life? And I think if you look at him, I mean his counterpart in many ways really is Oprah. You know, with Oprah coming out of an African-American experience with an understanding of the role religion plays in that culture, but someone who had moved to a very liberal, vague form of faith herself. And I think Lear is the other side of that coin. And I mean, he probably was genuinely mystified with why religious faith just couldn't cut it for most Americans. But he made that show, Sunday Dinner which didn't last very long, he made that show in an attempt to say, gosh, Hollywood should say something positive about religious faith, and dang it, I'm Norman Lear, they can't stop me, I'm going to try to do it. And that was his attempt. And when you look at it, you see both the strengths and the weaknesses of what Norman Lear had learned about religion in America through his experience with People for the American Way, and his struggles with Hollywood, too, to get Hollywood to take religion seriously.
1: I want to talk about All in the Family, and and I do bear in mind that we are dating ourselves now by discussing this in some detail. I had a recent conversation where I casually mentioned a, a new acquaintance, a young woman. I live in Mayberry. The little town I live in is not called Mayberry, but I was making a reference to, of course, the Mayberry of television land.
0: Andy Griffith, yeah.
1: She had no idea what I was talking about. So introduce us to what this show was and the role that it played in, kind of revolutionizing how sitcoms were made and what a sitcom could be and the many, many, many controversial issues that they injected into almost every single episode.
0: Well, I think the key was the things he let Archie Bunker say live on the air. Representing this blue collar, two fisted brand of cultural conservatism. Now once again, that's Norman Lear's look at cultural conservatism. So it's it's profane at times. It's he's blatantly racist in a lot of his views. Needless to say, his views of gay rights are Norman Lear's approach to right wing. He's got liberals, you know, as a daughter and a son-in-law, his, his wife is, is like a saintly but strangely secular caricature of this loving blue-collar wife. So you look at it two ways. To some degree, it's a little bit like Mel Brooks. Can you imagine what would happen right now if a major American studio tried to make Blazing Saddles?
1: It could not be done.
0: It could not be done. I don't know if springtime for Hitler from the producers could be done today. Well, Mel Brooks is a genius, and Mel Brooks also wanted to test the limits of what Hollywood could do. But he wanted to make the nation look at itself in a warped, cracked mirror and still laugh at it. And so he's talking about racism. He's talking about poverty. He's talking about a lot of things. Well, Norman Lear did the same thing with All in the Family and with his other shows. But here's the other thing that he did that I think is just as important, and I'm going to date myself once again. I think that a lot of what transpired with shows like MASH and some other of the greatest comedies of all time, Mary Tyler Moore, whatever, Friends… The idea that you could put serious questions about life and family and human relationships and death and suffering and the losing your job, the real stuff of human life, that you could put that in a show that still made you embarrassed at how loud you were laughing. And that was, I think, all Americans were embarrassed at how loud they laughed at Archie Bunker and all in the family.
1: I will tell you my experience growing up watching that show and my mom's reaction to it. She knew a little bit about Norman Lear, couldn't stand him, and she could not stand Archie Bunker as a character. Just couldn't. But she watched it every single week. And she laughed too, but she did it in that way that you laugh at something and, you, and like you say, you feel embarrassed for laughing.
0: See, Archie could say things about a hippie son-in-law, long-haired hippie son-in-law, played by Rob Reiner, of course. I mean like the ultimate baby boomer Hollywood liberal. He could make fun of them, and also he was a brilliant enough writer that he could say things about the left that the left would never have let someone on the conservative side say. And that's a very strong element of Jewish humor. I can say that about us, but you can't say that about us. It's a key element of the genius of Jewish humor in the American humor tradition. And that Norman Lear was making the left look at itself in the mirror, as well as making the right look at itself in the mirror. And the fact that when the show started with Archie and Edith sitting there at the piano belting out those were the days about the good old days, The fact that you felt for them, they were endearing, you cared for them, that was the genius of what Norman Lear pulled off with that show. What I'm trying to get people to understand, though, is he thought he was writing about ordinary Americans. And he was writing about some ordinary Americans, for sure. Blue-collar New York City, blue-collar Chicago, and a lot of urban life. But Norman Lear perhaps, I don't know, still ended up with no idea how far he was from understanding the power of ordinary Christian religious experience in the heartland of America. But at the same time, I want to stress this again. People for the American way, the longer it existed, the more it came into tension with the fact that much of American liberalism is no longer in favor of church-state separation the way it would have been thought of in the 50s, 60s, and even 70s. The old liberalism is kind of dead. They sincerely don't want protection for religion. They want protection for only the religion that they like, and they greatly fear conservative forms of religion. And I think Lear began to realize that as a true, old-fashioned First Amendment liberal, he was coming into more and more tension with the new emerging forms of liberalism. I mean, I have no idea what his mental state was in the last years of his life, but I'm having trouble picturing if you took Norman Lear in his prime and you set him in front of a TV and you watched white, rich Harvard students marching around chanting pro-Hamas slogans and people in urban areas chanting, gas the Jews. I'm having trouble picturing Norman Lear looking at that and saying,
1: oh, that's the new
0: form of liberalism. I have a sneaking suspicion that's not what he would think.
1: So, Terry, how would you so far evaluate the way that the media are covering the life and the death of Norman Lear?
0: Well, they don't have, I mean, for example, none of the stories I've read so far mention the show Sunday Dinner and how important it was in terms of trying to put another part of his own life and experience onto the screen. So I think they've got the first poll covered pretty well, the great liberal, the genius who made put real life on TV, and fought the religious right. They've got that. They don't have – while fighting the religious right, he began to realize how important religion really was to ordinary America, flyover America, red-state America, and how increasingly he became uncomfortable with the fact that Hollywood didn't seem to be able to wrestle with that. Let me read you one quote from Lear. This is in the New York Times obituary. But this this gets um, his perception of what he was trying to do with his, his shows. You looked around television in those years, referring to the middle and late 60s, and the biggest problem any family faced was mother dented the car, and how do you keep dad from finding out? The boss is coming to dinner, and the roast is ruined. The message that was sending out was that we didn't have any problems in normal, funny America. And he came out and saying, you know, where's the Vietnam War in that? Where is the civil rights movement in that? Where are burning American ghettos in that? Where is abortion in that? Of course, he was very, very strongly pro-abortion rights. And you had in the show Maud, I think, the first figure in a major popular American show who has an abortion. And they did a two-part show about it, which created all kinds of controversy. And what you have with Maud is this wisecracking Yankee, northern person who's moved to Florida and all this. You have – I think I'm mixing up a lot of facts there, so folks, please be kind to me on that. (laughs) But I'm away from my desk, and frankly, a lot of these shows, I didn't have as much experience watching, but I've read a ton about it. The key is he's trying to put the real hot-button topics of American life into sitcoms. Now, we're so used to this now, decades later, that nobody is surprised when these sorts of issues surface in popular TV shows. And then MASH took a lot of these subjects and went crazy digging into the drama of all of this. I don't know whether you want to even call MASH a comedy during the second half of its run. But Lear was the genius who pulled that off. Now, it's his approach to all these subjects. But he still, I think, I said this earlier and I'll repeat it. Lear had the ability to make the left have to look at its own views in a warped mirror as well as the right. I mean, Archie Bunker said a lot of things that made people laugh to keep from crying. And sometimes the words coming out of his liberal character's mouths must have made the liberals cringe just as much. Let's face it. I mean, the man had incredible talent. Now, could a cultural conservative who is a sincere religious believer ever get some, a similar type of show with their worldview into mainstream American television? I would say No. But I think, I think Norman Lear, like he praised Max McLean for doing that movie about the conversion of C.S. Lewis, I think Norman Lear would say, you show me a genius, really funny, evangelical from Nashville, and we'll try to get that show on the air, because that's America too. And I think by the end of his life, he was as worried about Hollywood not being able to make sense out of normal Americans and their religious beliefs, as he would be worried about, say, the rise of certain genuinely white nationalist or Christian nationalist voices in American culture.
1: I want to talk about one other aspect of his television producing, and that is he basically pioneered the all-black cast. Yeah. Jefferson's, if I'm not mistaken, Good Times and Sanford and Son.
0: Yeah, Those are shows that, just the way they lined up in my own life and when I was watching television and when I wasn't during college and graduate school and a bunch of other things, I'm not as familiar with those shows at all. I think it would be very interesting. It would be a good article if someone could research the role of black church life and religious faith in the role of those shows. You know, of course, everybody remembers Fred Sanford faking a heart attack. You know, They're coming for me, the angels are coming. You had a lot of that sort of language of a religious nature in that show. But I'll plead ignorant to being able to answer that question about those shows. But you know what? How in the world could you do three significant hit shows about the black American experience and family life and have left religion out of it? when that is one of the most intensely religious sectors of American life and culture. So, yeah, again, three cheers to him for at least trying to get some of those shows on the air and succeeding.
1: Terry, here's an email from Mark. He says, I'm 69, and I remember that liberal commentators complained that Norman Lear was making Archie Bunker too sympathetic. What are your thoughts for about a minute there?
0: And that's exactly right. That's what I meant when I said he had the genius of being able to make words come out of Archie Bunker's mouth that made the left cheer. Like, listen to how bigoted that man is. That's those crazy people who live in Queens, blue-collar America. And then he would turn around and say something that made total, absolute sense about the hypocrisy of the left. And then the left would be going well, maybe not. And then you'd have people, maybe like your mom, watching him and saying, yeah, well, he got that part right. And then they hear him say, the liberals say something, mocking him and say, well, he was an equal opportunity offender to some degree. And I think it's important to realize that A, television was scared to offend, period. And that it took someone of his consummate skill and talent to be able to get any material onto television that made the American blue zip code elites of New York and LA have to kind of shudder. The fact that there were liberals upset about the show, and that's true, that says something at least about the sincerity of his intentions. This is a really complex man Well, you can't write the story of American popular culture in the 70s, 80s without dealing with this man. And without dealing, I would argue, with his views on culture and religion.
1: Then with only a minute here, Terry, did Lear help divide America?
0: I think he did help divide America. But here's the question I would ask. Did he, in the end, divide America... Or was he brilliant enough to spot the divides and try to point them out in a way that others didn't? Then we have to say, yeah, but what was the impact of what he did? There's good impact on people from the American way, but there's a lot of bad impact. There's a lot of caricaturing of religious conservatism that went on in his life and work as well. And I would agree with that. But you'd have to say he spotted real divides in American life and tried to say something about them. It might be time for some conservative philanthropists and educators and others to create some film schools and some screenwriting schools and stuff to see if there are any conservatives in this world that can be anywhere near as funny and brilliant as Norman Lear, and see if we can find some new ways to get their material onto some form of streaming, alternative movies, alternative television, etc. Uh, it's time to make people laugh and think at the same time again and pull that off.
1: Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion and author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Madden. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at
0: the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.